That's an appropriate sounding, like creepy Halloween sound, isn't it? Alan, walk through the door. <laughs> Good evening. How are we doing? My name is Greg Wilhelm. Welcome to City Lit Press Night at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Um, thanks for coming out. Thanks for being part of Freefall Baltimore, which makes this evening possible. Um, in addition to Freefall Baltimore, which is uh, a program of the Baltimore Office and Promotion of the Arts, which endeavors to make all of Baltimore's cultural events free to uh, patrons and participants in the month of October, uh, the literary arts community in particular uh, ganged up on you. And uh, to, to develop this thing that we've done for two years now called Literary Arts Week, where we encourage our friends and partners, um, I'll explain that in a minute, um, in the literary arts community to do their free fall Baltimore programs in this one particular week to sort of show a critical mass and, uh, excuse me, I had a, uh, a rough lunch for a... Now, it's funny that they, uh, they picked a night to uh, 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 remantle a perfectly good-looking information desk. So, I don't know. It, no, it wasn't a good information desk? No. We're going to have information desk 2.0, Judy. Right. <laughs> uh, that's my friend Judy Cooper in the back there, the programs and communications manager for, or not the communications manager, the uh, publications and programs uh, director of the Pratt. Judy, thanks for having us tonight. And thanks for everything you do. 365 for uh, not only for the Pratt but for the uh, the writers and the readers of, of Baltimore. You're, you do a, an amazing job. But indeed, um, there is some uh, construction going on downstairs as we uh, we go from information desk to information desk 2.0, which I'm sure is going to be amazing. It'll be chock full of what In information, right? Uh, <laughs> um, as I was saying, uh, uh, City Lit Press Night is brought to you by Freefall Baltimore. But then the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance and the Maryland State Arts Council uh, partnered, up, partnered up with the uh, City Lit Project to um, encourage our friends in the literary community to present all of their uh, Free Fall Baltimore programs in this one particular week. So on the back of the table there, you'll find a postcard that lists all the events, and we're sort of in the middle of that week. Um, and it's been a great week. I saw some terrific plays based on Poe short stories, 10-minute plays at Loyola the other night and uh, representatives from City Lit and the Maryland State Arts Council and the Greater Baltimore Cultural Alliance have uh, been attending these events. And it's been great to sort of like um, raise the awareness of the literary arts community here in Baltimore and sort of show a critical mass that we are a force to be reckoned with. So when you talk about the big four, when you talk about the visual arts and the musical arts and the theatrical arts and the uh, performing arts, the, um, there's, there's also this little thing that we all love called the literary arts. And we are artists and we are writing, and we are publishing, and that's the, uh, that's the topic for this evening. Um, there are uh, plenty of sodas and cookies in the back and water, uh, so feel free to avail yourself to those. And again, I want to thank the Pratt Library and, and, and Judy Cooper for uh, partnering with City Lit Project to present our particular program for Literary Arts Week. An evening um, uh, hearing from local authors and also discussion of the sort of state of publishing here in the uh, 21st century, year 2012. Um, one last bit of um, housekeeping chores um, to, to announce. Um, there is a survey in the back, and we've been giving this out at all the literary arts programs this week. Um, 
This survey comes from the Baltimore Office of Promotion in the Arts, and it's important that you take one and, and take it home and fill it out. Um, it, it's, um, it's arduous. <laughs> it's a little bit longer than I thought they should make it. It's somewhere scarier than the SATs, but not, nece- <laughs> not necessarily as, as complicated as your tax return. Um, that said, I'm here to promote that you do this, um, but it's really your feedback on events like this and all the Free Fall Baltimore events that, that are getting this lovely document to uh, take your time to fill it out, send it back, uh, because it's what the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts based their reports on so that they can continue uh, supporting uh, the arts organizations in Baltimore to provide free arts programming throughout October. So I kid, I kid a little bit, but they're on the back table. Please, and if, I'll probably end up handing them out at the end. Take one home, check it out, and uh, send it back at your earliest convenience. That would be really, really appreciated. Um, Before we start talking a little bit about the state of publishing today, um, I thought it would be important to start with the most important thing that there is, and that's the literary art. It's the content. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where the artist struggle and work and reward themselves with being creative and disciplined and uh, phenomenal. And Baltimore has a phenomenal literary art scene. So before we start talking about the state of the industry and before I ask a few questions, I thought it'd be important to hear from some literary artists. Um, and uh, so I'm going to introduce two readers and uh, they'll come up and read and share their literary art for a few moments. And then we'll take a break and ask a few questions and have some more readings. Our first reader tonight is Jen Machowski. Jen Machowski, her novel, The Tide King, I was just telling Judy Cooper, 2013 is going to be a big year for Jen. Her novel, The Tide King, is forthcoming from Black Lawrence Press next year, a great independent press. And her collection of novellas, Could You Be With Her Now, is forthcoming from Danzig, also in 2013. She is the author of two collections of fiction and the editor of the anthology City Lit Sages Baltimore. And it was City Lit Sages Baltimore. That was the very first title from City Lit Project's literary imprint, City Lit Press, which we published in 2010. So I'm proud to uh, be uh, Jen's friend, Jen's publisher. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, join me in welcoming Jen Machowski. add my own noises to this tonight. Um, thanks for coming out tonight and for supporting Freefall Baltimore. I just wanted to say that I also uh, co-host a reading series that's going to be part of Freefall Baltimore this Saturday at Mina's Gallery in Hamden. It's the 510 readings. And we'll be having four readers, um, Carl Taro Greenfeld, um, James Magruder. I feel like I can't see all of you. Um, there, Adam Prince and Makita Brotman um, will be reading this Saturday. That's 5 p.m. at Mina's. If you want a reminder or want more information, just grab me at the break, and I'll be happy to, to talk with you about it. Um, 
as Greg said, I do have a couple of books coming out in 2013, and I just wanted to read a little bit from the novel that he mentioned, um, The Tide King. It's, it's basically about a, a man who lives forever. Uh, there's this, en- this enchanted herb that sort of comes through Poland to America, and a few people take it, and they are scattered, and they, they live forever, and they sort of find each other through the decades. And So it's a little bit of magical realism, but it was also really historically challenging for me to write it since it starts in Poland in um, the 1700s and ends in the 1970s here in America. Um, The piece I wanted to read concerns two soldiers who are the main characters um, of the novel, um, Stanley Polinski and Calvin Johnson. And this is just an excerpt of um, some of their time together during World War II when they became unlikely friends and sort of one of them winds up taking the herb and then you can read what happens from there when the novel comes out. They carried what they could carry. Most men carried two pairs of socks in their helmets, K-rations in their pockets, their letters and cigarettes in their vest. That queer little private, Stanley Polinski, also carried a book and it was not the Bible. Polinski, throw that thing away. With the nose of his carbine, Calvin Johnson, also a private, poked him in the small of his back, where our children's book, Tom Swift and His Planet Stone, was tucked in his pants under his shirt. No wonder you can't get any. At least I can read. Polinski flipped him the bird over his shoulder. They were in a line, two men across, stretching for miles from Surami on their way to Troina. Stanley Polinski was a boy who, back in Ohio, Johnson would have given the full order to. He would have nailed him with a football where he sat in the bleachers, reading a book. He would have spitballed him from the back of class or given him a wedgie in the locker room after track. Polinski cried in his bunk at night for their first week at Fort Benning, wrote long letters to his mother the way others wrote to their girls. Now, Johnson stared at his slight curved back all day, the sun hotter than fire. On narrow trails in the hills, they pulled themselves up with ropes and cleats through passes that only they and their mules, the dumbest, smelliest articles of military equipment ever used to transport supplies, could navigate, driving back enemy strongholds at Nishimi, Ponte Olivio Airport, Mazarino, Barra Franca, Cerami, and Guliano. It would seem so easy if not so many men died. If Johnson was not walking on an ankle he jammed on a hill, that had swollen to the size of a softball. And yet, their toughest fighting was still to come, at Troyona, with Germans shooting at them from the mountains in every direction. But not today. Today there was sky and food and the Germans to the east of them. You want these? Polinsky tossed the hard candies from his rations over to Johnson. Every day, they had scrambled eggs and ham, biscuits, coffee, and four cigarettes for breakfast cheese, biscuits, hard candy, and cigarettes for lunch, and a ham and veal loaf, biscuits, hard candies, and cigarettes for dinner. I thought a Nancy boy like you liked a little candy now and then. Johnson stuffed them in his mouth, pushing them into his cheeks like a squirrel. I haven't brushed my teeth in months. Stanley shook his head. I'm afraid I'm going to lose them all. Well, I'll tell you what, Johnson lit his cigarette. If I come across a toothbrush in my travels, I'll save it for you. I think you'll have better luck finding a Spanish galleon. Stanley lit his own cigarette. What do you know about Spanish galleons? 
What do you want to know? I don't know. Johnson closed his eyes. He had not done well in school. When he did not get a football scholarship to Ohio State, he thought he'd become a police officer like his father. Knowing the war would help his chances, he enlisted the first chance he got. What is it, like money or something? No, Stanley drawled, smiling. It's a ship. Warship? And commerce, too. They sailed mostly in the 16th to 18th centuries. Is that what you learned in that Tom Swift book? Johnson opened his eyes, studied Stanley lying on his back, knees swinging open and closed, smoke pluming up between them. Wouldn't you like to know? Stanley stared at the sky. His eyes broke up smiling when he looked at you, happy or sad. They squished a little, the outsides wrinkling, along with his forehead, his cheeks dimpling. Polinsky was the youngest of six. Johnson had always wanted siblings. His mother had him. Another had died in the womb. He imagined Stanley as a little brother and grimaced, but one took what you got, not what you wanted. Let me um, jump ahead a little bit. They spent the summer moving inland toward Germany. The war will be over soon, Stanley wrote his mother, his 20th letter. The Germans are running like cowards. He played poker with Johnson and Ennis, throwing pennies and cigarettes and girly pictures into a German helmet they used as a pot. I hope you are well and don't worry about me. He spent one week at Netley Hospital for his leg wound. Nothing much has happened to us in Europe except we are getting fatter. He lost 20 pounds since leaving the States. Hopefully by the next time you get this, I will be on a train home. In September, they entered the Hirchen Forest. I would die for a ham. Johnson let his cigarette dangle as he settled in the brush. It was a game they played sometimes, what they would die for, since they might die for much less. I would die for a turkey sandwich, Stanley answered. Spruce and balsam trees cloaked their eyes, yielding little forests beyond a few feet. The tree limbs low grabbed, and the men walked with a semi-permanent stoop. I would die for a woman's hips. I would put myself between them and sleep like the dead. Johnson grinned, his teeth white against the green cave. Water dripped constantly. The men could never find the source of it. Sometimes it confused Stanley, and when he slept for brief periods and woke, he thought he was at his parents' house, down the hall from the leaky faucet. Stay here, Johnson's arm would grab for Stanley's ankle as he began to push forward through the brush. The sink is freaking, freaking leaking. Sorry, I had to censor myself. Stanley waved him off before Johnson yanked and Stanley fell down into the bed of pine needles that covered the forest floor. I would die to get out of this forest, Stanley said as they ate the last of their bread and coffee. The supply lines inland were farther away, their rations fewer. I would die for dry socks. The mud and fog lay on them like a film. In the dark undergrowth, the men rubbed against trees and each other like ingredients in a stew. Where were the Germans? Surely not as stupid as the Americans, Stanley thought, burrowing through the forest, their tanks and artillery and air force stalled by the dense formations of trees and rough terrain. The Allies were all alone. The brass said the Hurkin forest was 50 square miles. It seemed to stretch to 100, then 200, then 300, as late October became early November and late November became early December. 
Stanley did not understand how they could not see the Germans, and yet the Germans could see them. They know these forests. They're stuffed in bunkers while we walk right by them, Johnson said, coughing. Johnson had developed a cough, snore, shiver in his sleep. Perhaps Stanley could boil the herb for tea, soothe Johnson's deftly rattle. I still have the root, Stanley wrote his mother, although I suspect I will have no reason to use it. You never even told me how. Should I put it under my lip? In a wound, perhaps? His right foot smelled. There was no time to unlace the boot and find out whether his toes had rotted. We are warm and fat and happy here. Save me chum, some chinina. Duck blood soup, Johnson laughed later when Stanley described Christmas dinner at home. You eat everything, don't you, Paul? Makes me want to come to your house for dinner after the war. Right now, I would eat anything, Stanley shivered. He shivered when he was awake, and he shivered when he was dreaming. His breath decadoed with shivers. He shivered when he peed, and he shivered when he shat, and he shivered when he shivered. Stanley would eat his shivers if he could, but they would probably give him diarrhea, he thought, like everything else. <clears throat> How much time? Second? <laughs> I'm just going to read the last part of this. <clears throat> they turned around and followed the slit trance back toward the bunker. Then they climbed up the slope they had fallen down earlier. Let's sweep out and move forward, Stanley said. Stanley moved in front, Johnson in back. The shelling shook and shedded the tree canopy above them, branches falling like swooping vultures, pelting their shoulders and arms, leaving welts. The raining wood and shells filled the air with the sound of sanding metal and Stanley could not hear anymore, only see their jaws moving, their eyes flicking back and forth as they scanned the area for mines, for Germans, for secure ground. Stanley wished they had stayed in the bunker. He glimpsed a man running through the trees, white and red, cro right and red cross armband, a medic. They knew how to get back to the line. All they needed to do was follow him. Stanley motioned to the men and ran toward the, the man. He had not gotten far when the ground swelled behind him like a wave, sweeping him off his feet, a shell. His body hit the dirt at angles, elbow, knees, ankles, before rolling. When he stopped, he felt for his legs, moved them, and stood up, crouched over. Johnson, he called back. The area from where he'd been thrown was peppered with wood and metal, blackened bark, red and gray snow, Johnson's helmet. He followed the trail to Johnson, what was left of him. Blood spread from Johnson's left groin, his left leg scattered around him, broken bone and carved like scrimshaw and strewn with strips of muscle and skin. Johnson shivered, coughed, and looked lazily up at Stanley, drunk with shock. Stanley called for the medic. The blond man staggered up and then off, shouting for help. Stanley tore a strip of cloth from Johnson's backpack and made a tourniquet. Johnson's big, long face caved in from his cheeks to his chin. His eyes fluttered. Johnson, Stanley shook him, but Johnson was going. Stanley took off his helmet and scooped the herb out of the lining. He opened Johnson's mouth and pushed it in, but Johnson didn't chew. Stanley opened Johnson's mouth and put a third of it between Johnson's gums and teeth. 
He picked off another piece and put it in the red beating hole that was once Johnson's hip, leg. Then he moved Johnson's jaw with his own hands, pushing Johnson's tongue aside, grinding the herb with Johnson's teeth. Johnson's mouth was as dry as cotton, and the herb coated the soft pink insides. Stanley stuck his finger in Johnson's mouth and pushed the flakes, the unchewed pieces, into Johnson's throat. Johnson gagged, sitting up and coughing, hands at his neck. The green-brown flakes flew out, covering Stanley's face and shirt. Stanley wrapped his arms under Johnson's chest and jerked upward. Stanley jerked and Johnson coughed and the herb chunk flew into the snow. Medic, the man dropped his kit beside Stanley. Stanley moved back and caught sight of the spat-out herb. It glowed in the detritus, unearthly. His heart jumped. He reached for the glowing orange saxifrage. The medic turned, shook his head, frowned. Johnson was dead. The medic tagged him, took one of his dog tags, and scrambled back in the forest. It seemed wrong to leave Johnson like this, any of them like this. Maybe Stanley wouldn't fight anymore, stay here with Johnson, work the herb into his wounds, down his throat. He could stick his knife into Johnson's chest and massage it into his heart. The trees shook around him. Men shouted in the distance, the trill of bullets, explosions, small fires baked in pockets of black trees. When another shell landed to the left of Stanley, he could feel the warmth of it on his leg. He did what he imagined any other person would do. He ran. Thanks. Thanks, Jen. So, so Jen was the editor of City Lit Press's very first book, City Sages Baltimore. This is an anthology of um, fiction by Baltimore-based writers, past and present. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce you to the author of our latest book, It Can Be Solved by Walking, which is a collection of poetry and photographs by Jennifer Wallace. And um, what I like about this book, uh, in addition to it just being wonderful poetry, it is thoroughly rooted in Baltimore, uh, yet speaks to larger universal and urban ecological thoughts and issues. So I'm going to introduce Jennifer. Jennifer Wallace teaches at the Maryland Institute College of Art. She is poetry editor at the Cortland Review and a founding editor of Toad Lily Press. Her poems and essays appear in exhibition catalogs, chapbooks, anthologies, and literary journals. And City Lit Press was, uh, was honored to publish her latest collection of poetry, It Can Be Solved by Walking, in 2012, just this year. Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Wallace. Nice crowd. Thanks for coming, everybody. You know, last summer, after finishing this book, I realized that I had, uh, that Baltimore was my muse. And I, I wasn't supposed to be here. I wasn't supposed to live in Baltimore. And one of the um, question marks, big question marks, is how did I end up here in the first place? Uh, basically, a nature kid who just 
you know, never thought I would live in a city again. So the title of the book, It Can Be Solved by Walking, comes from a Latin phrase, solvitar ambulando, which was the medieval practice of monks who would walk the labyrinth to solve <clears throat> the thorny problems that monks try to solve. <laughs> and, um, but I had this other thorny problem, which was to figure out my place uh, in this place. So I'll read, uh, uh, the book is one book length poem. So I'll just read throughout so that it gives you a sense of the arc of my investigation. On the muse question, I realize that Baltimore is kind of like one of those lovers that you know you're sp not supposed to be with, but you hang out with the person anyway. <laughs> I have a little cold, so excuse me. Can everyone hear me okay? I wanted to change my name, find a remote island off the Newfoundland coast. The only way to get there would be by boat, and only I could send it, and only on occasion. I'd be a friend of Gannett's, Emerson's new protege. Time would exist as it should, tidal and thick as a forest. I'd be historical, a spinster, on a bright day clipping asters outside a clapboard shed, my graying hair wild with wind. In November, I'd split wood and welcome the kid from town who'd deliver my mail. I'd catch my fish. I'd be a kingdom, an ecology. How could I have known that my arrival would build itself on contradiction? Instead of ocean, murder, exhaust, not flowers. In this metropolis, all the homes with the name stranger carved on their doors. There is a grammar etched in the mind's bone, a topography that can be counted on. It might erode with time and weather, but beauty and ugliness run in its gullies with more or less volume at will if willed. So anyway, I wandered all around Baltimore for years just watching, taking pictures, making notes. Sometimes the poems were photographs, sometimes the photographs were poems. Got hard to tell the difference after a while. I startled a peregrine while walking near the station. First winter days, the pewter sky a vacant lot with leafless trees, gray limbs. The bird that flew from there with something in its claws, dangling and also gray. The city shudders in the difficult wind. A train rumbles through the tunnel. The bird was quiet, and I was. The rat or the pigeon tucked snug against its belly. <clears throat> Glad for the peregrine, glad for the city. Poor rat, poor pigeon. A train in the station and all the travelers on their way. Uh, this poem starts with a uh, line from William Blake uh, who said to honor the particulars holy and minute. Particulars holy 
and minute, right here in the bookstore cafe where the women gossip and chew and the man with the green hat props his bandaged thumb in the book he soon might own. Muffin crumbs under the table on the red tiled floor. A red, I mean a hair strand tinseled on the chair's rung and Otis Redding's hum under the milk steamer's whiz. This is the world, animate with the intricate. The door opens and closes and a deep field arrives in t-shirt and jeans. Outside, the storefront with its warm yellow light, lonely as hoppers, and a source we believe but cannot see. How do I know myself, this place, my place, the space of my knowing? Lofty ideas, the way the snow drifts and lofts, full of moisture and air. Wind and clouds aloft above the movements of the city's people. There are actual buildings where we rest and argue. Mrs. McDonald puts a kettle on. Mr. Jamal cuts some hocks, thinking thoughts, remembering to do things later, remembering another time when someone older taught them to boil and cut. When I go out onto the sidewalks, I notice ice, wet shoes. The day will be nasty. I know it, and I carry it like a satchel all day. The way information weaves through the streets and markets, among the parishioners, but vaguely the same way the news about icebergs and disease makes its way. The one Mrs. Krinsky takes a pink pill for, the one everyone knows about but cannot change. The snow piles up and changes everything, the tree, roof lines, roadways, all of it inconvenient, cold and new, wonderful. The way cider steam swirled above the pot that day they canceled school. Brothers and sisters, kids from next door, a tent made of blankets, a parent or a friend's parent yelling and laughing. In the snow, a warmth to the street without trucks and buses. The city, now unknown, takes me aloft, a kind of disclosure as when a cloud flake hits my tongue. I'm going to read a couple more poems, two more. Um, This poem refers to Isabel, which is Hurricane Isabel, that swept through here some years ago. On that day, a sea wind grazed the graveyard hill. What was left of Isabel tracked north Canada, and I sat still above East Baltimore with my back against the stones, against the clouds. There's something strong about the oldest markers off kilter, pushed up and over, unfazed by the earth's sure moving. 
across town, south and west, but also on a hill looking eastward toward the bay, Mount Auburn's stones are tended by the neighbors when they have some time. The sign marker calls it City of the Dead for Colored People. Since 1868, after their land-rooted sweat, the only place in town where freed slaves rest. The wind blows from that direction. I'm sure the storm swept through there first, reminding me there is no end to the battering, to the north, no north or south, no difference between east and west. One last poem. I, I, I live over near... Um, the Clifton Golf Course, Lake Clifton. They have a great party there in August every year. You guys ought to go. It's a great reggae party. Uh, so, anyway, here we are at the reggae party. <laughs> at the intersection, burnt August fields and blistered streets. The city readies for summer's last fling. Vendors circle the band shell with curried goat and red striped beer. The sound man checks, checks his mics, and Marley's wail unites with insect wings and chicken smoke and air. Where is Jamaica? Baltimore. Where? Tonight they reside on music's continent, behind the chain link where holstered cops keep peace between the races who don't appear to need much help. They boogie bum to bum under the moon and all the colored lights and everyone singing one love. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, I'm going to shift things up a little bit, and since we only have four readers this evening, I'm going to talk a little bit about the business and um, have our four reading City Lit Press authors come up and join me here behind their respective books, so that if anyone has questions for you guys at this point, um, you can answer those, and I'll give a little bit of a, a you know who you are, um, and um, I'll briefly introduce um, Lara Chauvin, uh, who is the winner of the first uh, uh, Clarinda Harris Poetry Prize. I'll introduce her in full in a minute. And behind her in the red tie, uh, Bruce Sager, who is the winner of the uh, second annual uh, Harris Poetry Prize. Uh, so I thought we'd have a little bit of a conversation now at this point, midway through, uh, about the state of publishing as we see it. We have uh, three poets and a novelist and a publisher up here. Um, but I wanted to start it, uh, I thought it was interesting to start the conversation off this evening um, about uh, literally what I, what I heard on the radio on the way in um, about Newsweek. That after 80 years, uh, the, the publication Newsweek, which admittedly has gone through probably ups and downs and ebbs and flows of, of, of what you may or may not consider quality journalism and and media reportage and whatnot. Um, nevertheless, a, a venerable um, publication in the United States is, is going to stop making a print edition. Um, it will only be available online. 
starting at the end of this year. Um, so that got me to, and that's a little bit of apples and oranges when you talk about books versus magazines. But I wanted to sort of throw some numbers out at you to establish the context for our conversation in regards to books um, and sort of the state of the publishing scene here in the, uh, the first uh, early days of the 21st century. There are 300,000, 300,000 or so uh, new titles, new titles published every year. And that's not books, it's just titles. That is just the new books that are coming out by the big six publishers. The big six publishers are your sort of standard New York-based uh, conglomerates, your Simon & Schuster's, your Random House, um, et cetera, et cetera. There are roughly another 85,000 independent presses. And by independent presses, essentially means that these small to actually can be quite large uh, publishing operations where the publisher, the buck stops there. Uh, and unlike Random House, the guy who runs Random House um, in turn needs to sort of substantiate and, and sort of uh, uh, explain the existence of Random House and the bottom line that Random House makes to a, to a, to a, uh, a chap in Berlin who works for a company named Bartelsmann. So when I talk about the big six, these are like large conglomerates who are part of large media companies. And then you've got roughly 85,000 or so uh, university presses, large independent presses, and sort of small independent presses like City Lit. In addition to those 300,000 new books, and again, we're not talking about the classics that are also pushed out every year again and again and again, the Mark Twain's, the Jane Austen's, all those other books that are out there at any given time vying for, uh, for, for, for your dispensable cash in a very you know, uh, cash-strapped time. Um, there are another two million, two million uh, self-published books. And throughout a lot of my conversation, you'll notice a... Uh, a not-so-subtle uh, thread of technology. Because of technology, technology allows me to do what I do today, but it also allows a lot of other people to do very similar things, and that's to make things, like these four things that you see in front of you, these printed packages called books. Two million additional self-published books every year. That's a lot. That's a lot. So what's happening? That's just the printed books. Um, a couple other uh, uh, some numbers, some, some additional numbers for you. In the first quarter of 2012, uh, for the first time, sales revenue from e-books outpaced uh, paperback books. I'm sorry, outpaced hardcover books. So e-books, um, which I love. I don't have a problem with ebooks. I love printed books and prefer printed books. Uh, sales revenue from ebooks uh, accounted for $282 million. That's in just the first quarter of 2012. Uh, hardcover books in the same period uh, accounted for $230 million. Uh, but still, the front runner was, was paperback versions of books. Um, they accounted for $300 million in sales revenues. 
So for the first time, e-books outpaced a paper book, some sort of print book, in the first quarter of 2012. In August of 2012, Amazon.com, love them or hate them, whatever your opinion is about them, for the first time in August, the sales uh, revenues uh, and units sold from Amazon uh, uh, e-books topped printed books for the first time. So I think the message is that e-books are here to stay. I don't necessarily think they're an evil thing, but we can have that conversation. Um, but... Um, they're a phenomena, and, and I remember actually my first pu job in publishing at the university, uh, at Johns Hopkins University Press, um, there were guys tinkering around with this thing called hypertext, which was merely, they thought it was the coolest thing ever, and it was a document that allowed you to leap around within the same document. Well, big deal <laughs> today, right? Because if you read a web page or read a, an ebook today, these links are now sending you out where? All over the internet. Um, the internet wasn't quite the pervasive sort of, you know, the, maybe the fifth element after fire and wind and earth and water. There's the internet. Um, it wasn't quite that way in the early 90s. So it's an amazing and rapid change. A co combination of the content being conducive to ebooks. A readership wanting to read ebooks, and then this interesting middle thing, <coughs> the all important device, right? We're all now reading books on Nooks and Kindles, on your phones. Um, I just had a, I'm teaching a literature and technology class for freshmen at the University of Baltimore, and we're doing an experiment in Twitter. Um, it's, it's not the best writing I've ever read. Um, Kids love it, and they're really engaged, and they're coming up with some interesting uh, formations of plot lines and situations. Because they're still, even if it's 160 characters per blast, you know, what's beautiful about literature, what's beautiful about art, it's all still about the human condition. And these kids are complaining and worrying, have anxiety, and trying to figure out their lives, maybe not through the chapters and chapters and chapters of a Jane Austen novel which I wish they would, but they won't, um, but through these 160-character blasts, and whether they're the author, whether they're the reader, there's a lot of questions, a lot of really interesting questions, I think, involved. So, um, so technology is obviously, probably, I think, maybe, even more than economics, probably the, the foremost sort of catalyst that's, that's, that's affecting the world of publishing, the world of writing, and the world of uh, reading, sort of simultaneously. So I wanted to sort of start things by, um, well, first of all, do, do you all have any questions at this point? Do you have any burning questions that brought you here? Um, one of the questions I had for my poets, um, and then Bruce Sager said, don't ask me that question because I don't give a rat's ass about technology and it doesn't affect my writing and I'm going to write my books and write my poems the way I, I want to. Um, and that's, that's great. I don't really think um, technology should be affecting the content, which is why I had our guests read first, to remind ourselves that it's all about the literary art. Uh, because if you read it on a phone that big, or if you read it on a tablet that big, or if you read it in a book that big, if the literary art is not of a superior quality that speaks to the human heart, 
that entertains and educates, then what's the point? End of soapbox. Um, but that said, I think each of our guests tonight um, have been impacted or uh, somehow by, by technology. If it's the way they write, it's the, it's the way they publish, um, or if it's the way they promote themselves, which is very important today. Um, so, Bruce, I'll start with you since you seem to be the most curmudgeonly of the bunch. Um, uh, just sort of like what's the role of technology in t you know, talking about the state of publishing today? What do you think is, is, is happening and how does that make you feel? <laughs> there, are two kinds of, uh, there are two kinds of technology I suppose you can address. There's the technology of publishing. There's the technology that affects the writer. Um, I don't know too much about publishing. Um, I know a little bit about writing. I know that the uh, technique that I used to use, uh, Jack Barth has a binder. I'd give about $10,000 to get it because I think he's the greatest writer we have. Every novel he's written, he's written in longhand um, on loose leaf paper that's lived in that binder. The Sotweed Factor came from that binder. The End of the Road, uh, uh, his most recent novels, everything came out of that binder. There's something about that that is beautiful and scary because I used to write on a yellow legal pad and my poems had a certain shape to them. And eventually, as you know, Greg, I ran a pretty big typesetting house in Baltimore for 26 years. I had access over many decades to technology to, uh, to uh, craft and coddle the word. Um, but I, I, I moved eventually to a personal computer, and I just can't even imagine um, not writing on a computer today. It's very fluid. I type quickly. I'm able to grab the spill. Now, some people would say you're better off to retard the spill to the, sh to the, to the pace of the, of the human hand, as it were, and that you can organize your thoughts. I used to say this um, <clears throat> more completely, but... I've gone to the dark side or the, <laughs> the pixelated side. Um, I, I prefer the computer. Um, and at this point, because of my typographic background and because of my writing background, I find it, it, it really changes the shape of what I'm doing, even to the extent of, um, well, recently Brickhouse Books has um, offered to bring out a, a new collection of poems. I've been putting it together. It's probably about 112 pages. It's called Everything new is old again. It's a collection of pre-millennial poems that I've dug up out of my files and that I'm just polishing and burnishing and having a hell of a good time with for four hours a night, like between midnight and four every night. So the publisher said, well, we'd like to bring it out in a 7 by 10 format. So I took and I created a 7 by 10 document. I started to drop the poems. I started to pour the poems in it. Now I'm looking at spreads and I'm saying, well, gosh, this, this poem would be more effective if you saw the whole spread, if you saw the, the two pages of it when you open the book. It changes the order of the book, the poems that, that, that are in the book. Then I start, and I, I know you know that I'm, as a typographer, I'm fairly anal retentive about these issues, but I started to play with um, line breaks and, well, really more importantly, I think, with, um, the, with uh, uh, breaks between the stanzas relineating things, rewriting things. A lot of the poems now actually start at the top and end at the bottom of the page. You can open things. It's, 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 it's arbitrary, but it's extremely balanced. 
this is technology that's doing this. This isn't Bruce. This is Bruce sitting at a computer with a cigar or some scotch and having a good time. So I don't know too much about uh, publishing, but I know that technology has really had an impact. By the way, publish, polishing a book for, or a poem 20, 30, 50, 75, how many times? You're, you're a poet. 200 times? Sure. They get better. I look, I look at the stuff as it existed three weeks ago, and I look at it again, and I go, my God, I've changed it 30 times in three weeks. And most every one of those tweaks is better. It, you couldn't do it longhand. Dylan Thomas produced two lines of poetry. He said, I dip my bucket in, I bring up two lines of poetry a day. He would take and write out the force that through the green fuse drives the flower, drives my green age. That was it. The next day, he'd write, he would rewrite it and write two more lines. The next day, rewrite it and write two more lines. You don't want to take and write in the, in the white giant's thigh <laughs> by hand 80 times to get to the end of the poem. But he did. That was his method. That was his technology in Wales at a certain time. Mine I just described. I'm gonna, uh, thanks, Bruce. Um, I'm going to move to uh, who I consider my most uh, analog author. wonder no one's looking at me who thinks they're my most analog author. Jennifer! <laughs> Which is uh, because of the whole idea of her book is to uh, walk around your city, wherever it is, and stop doing this. Right. I don't even own one of those. I made a that, But that said, excuse me, well, that I mean, said, um, and I think Jennifer would concur, uh, of these four books, Jennifer's book is the one that I would not have published, frankly, because of the economics of it. Uh, if it weren't for the technology. Um, uh, she really wanted to include these photographs, which are amazing, but um, it, it is literally the, the, the revolution in technology that has allowed small presses like City Lit to consider a book that has photographs that, um, you know, that book 10, 15 years ago would have been, I don't know, maybe $15 a unit or so to, to manufacture, and it's significantly less now so that it can be uh, done and done beautifully, um, and, uh, and and find its audience. So, so it's. I think it's interesting. So you might want to touch about that a little bit, Jennifer, about you being our most analog author, but yet a beneficiary of the technology mm. that allows a book like this to be published today. Well, I think Greg's right in just the ability to include the photographs. I can describe the working process too, with Greg and the designer was completely facilitated by us being able to sit together in front of the screen and, and move things around. Uh, we knew that there would be a question about technology. And when I first read the question, I went, oh, God, technology. But then when I sat down to really think about it, I made a list of the pros and cons and how that kind of affects my life, both as a writer and as an editor. Uh, and I have more pros than cons, and that kind of surprised me, but I think that the cons are proportionally bigger, maybe. Um, but anyway, in this list of pros, things that I didn't expect that would uh, be encouraging to me as a writer and as an editor in the way that we use technology. Now, one is, is that I've been able to make connections with other writers all over the world, you know, and... That's just been a wonderful pleasure for me. And this work that I do in eco-poetics in the U.S., as far as my um, survey of that poetic landscape, it, it's a fairly narrow uh, focus, and a lot of it is on language theory, which isn't so much what I'm interested in, although I am interested in it. 
But in Europe, especially in the UK and Scotland and Ireland, there are groups of uh, people who are doing eco-poetics that are right in the same vein that I am. So, so while I didn't feel like I had a lot of kinship with my literary circles uh, here in the themes that I explore, I found this whole community in Scotland that I never would have known about if it wasn't for being able to talk with them um, via the internet and some of their uh, websites and blogs. So that was a big um, plus. The other is that there's a, I'll tell all of you who are writers of any kind, there's a, you might know about this, it's called The Page. <laughs> and it's this kind of wonderful website that has quotes by writers of all stripes that come from their articles in various journals, so essays about the craft of writing. And in any one day, there would be 50 writers who are publishing in all kinds of journals. So someone is assembling all of these. Then there are links to 50 of the major literary journals. And on one side and the other side are writers from all over the world and direct links to the places where their works are published, all on one website. It's that kind of access to what the landscape is, is amazing. We never would have had that before, or if we did, we'd be paying a bundle in postage and, and other things to have access to the wide range of voices. It's amazing. Uh, I'm an editor for the Cortland Review. It was one of the very first, if not the very first, online literary magazines. The poets at that time were, we don't send our work to online journals. You know, that was thought to be kind of lesser than. Uh, but that whole situation has changed. And as an editor for the Courtland Review, again, we have um, submissions from all over the world. We have three editors working all in different cities. The managing editor is yet in another city. And we're able to read and have conversations about these works with each other. And that would never happen before. And for the Courtland Review, which is totally based on people who just are in love with the art form, you know, we are able to put that magazine out. We wouldn't be able, the labor of it would be much just prohibited. The magazine wouldn't exist. And then related to that now is the ability to embed other media into our website. So we have now um, short uh, video clips with poets at home. And we have, uh, someone would write an essay about sonnets and there'd be a little video of, you know, Kenneth, Brana reciting a Shakespeare sonnet embedded right into the essay. So the way that new media has made the landscape of literary discourse richer and deeper is just a wonderful... Am I going on too long? I, have, I haven't even gotten to my cons yet. Um, okay, the other thing, online submissions and email submissions. You know, in the old days, you had to have packets of poems and stories in envelopes, going out to however many magazines at a time, waiting for that mail to come back. And now, you know, that you can do, for, for sending stuff, to do email submissions makes things much more um, efficient. And as editors, you know, that we can get things online and organize them better makes our work go faster, which means that we can respond to you faster. So here's a question. Mm -hmm. As an editor, are you reading the work on the screen? Yes. See, well, I mean, I'm reading it on the screen, but I'm, I mean, my own practice is to read it out loud, right? So, it, cre it so it creates, possibly for some poets, 
um, a suspicion that the, the work is received differently on the screen mm -hmm. than, it is on the, than it is on the page? Yeah. Yeah, the journal, I'm not sure what the problem would be. You mean that the lineation would be off or something? Oh, like well, that? actually, if it's an online journal, I suppose yeah. that you could make this argument. But, but, but I, I would still say I'm astonished when I actually print out poems that I've been working on, uh -huh. and I look at them and I go, well, wow, that's really different once it's on the page. Oh, oh, oh. you know, we have a whole process that, I mean, we have had guys who have worked on this now for 11 years, so that when someone's making a submission, they see the galley even before we see it. They can uh, make sure that it looks exactly the way they want it to look before the editors even see it. So I haven't found it to be problematic. What are your similar cons? Um, oh, okay, now let's see if I finished all my, uh, I think I've finished all of my uh, pros. There's a couple of other ones. Okay, I only have two cons. One is, the problem is that, and this is one thing that you mentioned, you get too plugged in, and it becomes, I would say, if writing and dealing in digital format rather than analog format, I consider that to be a real cerebral activity. And there's a danger in that. You know, you lose that body connection, the pen scratching on the paper, the time it takes for the idea to move from this line, this interchange from heart to mind. In, in Japanese, the word is kokoro. It means heart and mind, you know, depending on the, it's the same word. You know, we don't distinguish between heart and mind. And I think when you're writing by hand, reading out loud, walking while you're reading your poems and speaking them out loud, it becomes more of a whole activity, whereas when you're just in this confinement, it's narrow, but that's been mentioned. The other thing I think a con is that because of the exposure to so many different voices and so many different ideas, there can be a danger that you start to trust authorities other than yourself. And I think that's a huge danger for a writer, you know, that really you're the first source of authority. And I think that if you have too many voices that you're juggling, that that can be problematic and you stray away from, from your, your heart stuff. Um, but that's it for now, I guess. Thanks, Jennifer. Okay. Um, I'm going to pick up a, something, a thread that Jennifer was, was, was alluding to and ask um, Lara Chauvin the next question. Because Lara, Lara is also the editor of the Little Paducent Review. Um, which is a, a fabulous uh, a journal of national repute, but based in Howard County. Um, I would think that that process that Jennifer was describing, uh, compiling poems, printing them out, packaging them up, putting them in an envelope, postage, going to the post office, that's, in a way, could be a nice little first vetting you know, um, uh, process. If you're not, if you don't have the gumption to do that, well, maybe you don't have the gumption to get published. So today, with electronic submissions, are you, you know how's that? How's the fact that people can more easily uh, submit things online? Is that changing the quality and/or the amount of of things that editors such as yourself and other editors are seeing at at online journals? Um. Well, I, when I came into Little Patuxent Review, we were receiving um, submissions mostly by email. And um, in the last year, we changed over to a submission manager called Submittable, which if any of you are writers and submitting to journals, um, you're either familiar with it or you should be. 
Um, I, I really like that program. It allows us to, it, it just makes it easier. So for instance, when I first came on as editor um, of LPR, the editor was really the only person who read the submissions. So I was reading all of the poetry submissions. Uh, Rafael Alvarez, our fiction editor, was reading all of the fiction. And it was, you know, it was only based on one person's read. Um, because we use this program now, we can have a reading staff, and people can read and vote on pieces and comment on them. And I feel, especially because Little Patuxent Review is a community-based organization, I feel that that's really important. That's part of our mission. So now the pieces are being seen by a community and voted on by the community. You know, the editor, whether it's me or somebody else, um, the editor-in-chief will have the final say and will be the one putting the pieces together into, you know, a book form, because we are a print journal. Um, but I think it's immensely helpful. Little Patuxent Review. What? Submittable. Submittable. Sorry. Submittable. And there are a few similar programs, but yeah. Submittable is, 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 is probably the best. That's really good. Um, and then lastly, Jen. Jen is also the editor of uh, an online journal uh, entitled uh, JMWW. And really been enamored and impressed by the way that uh, Jen has not only started this, but then sort of developed a cadre of editors around her, again, all over the place, uh, to really turn JMWW into a really engaging, high-quality, uh, again, online-only publication. It, they, you do a, the occasional print anthology, but um, uh, I think it was Jennifer, I forget who said earlier about, you know, five, seven years ago, if you wanted to be a respected uh, poet, you wouldn't even contemplate sending something to an, an online uh, publication. And uh, in fact, I had a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Dean Smith, some of you might know Dean, just write an essay about how that has changed. So that now, um, you know, getting published online, it, it's sort of almost falling back into the same sort of, you know, tiers of, you know, you know getting published at plowshares in print is a you know, maybe equates to being published somewhere else online. So it's evolving. Can I ask a question? Yeah. And add, um, Jen and Jennifer can help answer this too. So my question is, and it's a question I have for myself both as a poet and as an editor, um, when you're submitting to online journals then, how do you gauge the quality of the journals where you are sending? Read them. <laughs> <laughs> read them and see, you know, that's how I judge them. If I like the work, I'll send it. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I would just read, and I, I, lots of my friends and contemporaries are writers as well, so if I see them published in a journal, I may think, believe that there's a similar aesthetic at play and that they might enjoy my work as well. But you're right, there, there, there are thousands of journals now. There's actually a really great database out there also called um, Duotrope, Duo, D-U-O-T-R-O-P-E. And it's basically an online database of all the journals out there. Um, JMWW's in it. I'm sure Little Patuxent, and of course, Courtland Review is. It'll give you, it's basically a searchable database. It'll tell you, um, you can um, run a search for like journals that accept fiction of 5,000 words or less, that are, that's sci-fi or literary, that pay, that accept online submissions versus print, and it'll sort of spit out like all the journals that fit this search profile that you've created. So it really cuts down like you sitting with the writer's market book, you know, and, and circling things, and it's, it's really, uh, really useful. And we, 
we're all in it. We try to update our pages. We list our preferences there. Our websites are listed there. Um, our submission response times are there. So if you, you can know before you submit whether a journal is going to take a year to get back to you on average or 30 days. You know, um, I think they may even list prize winners and, and things like that as well. But I just wanted to add this, which is kind of drifting into another question, but is definitely related to technology because it's now easier to do these searches. And for those of you who are looking for places to place your work, I would recommend not necessarily focusing exclusively on literary venues, you know, the usual suspects of journals that publish fiction and nonfiction and poetry. If you're, like, like I am, writing poems that have a lot to do with city issues or, or issues around ecology, you know, you can find journals that are basically ecological science journals that will publish the occasional poem or short story, even if they don't know that they want such a thing, right? So, I mean, you could be looking at, thing, at journals and uh, magazines that are thematically along the same lines as your work and be looking, you can be, check very quickly online to see whether they accept poems or stories or book reviews, either one. And, then you, and this is how I got in touch with these people in Scotland. So, you know, you can, don't be so narrow to think that it's only a literary universe out there. And that's one thing that's cool about the internet because you can see how wide that universe really is. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I'll, I'll mention the Urbanite, even though it's no longer with us. Um, but the Urbanite, for 10 years, did exactly that. Uh, published great short fiction and great uh, poetry. Um, uh, that, and it wasn't necessarily considered a, a literary journal. So, so I want to uh, go back to some literary art. So let's have some more reading. And then at the end of these two, next two readings, we'll open up the floor to, to general questions. So um, if our guests would feel a little bit more comfortable not sitting up the table. Wait, Bruce, I'm going to call on you first so you don't have to, to move. So, um, but thanks for your, for your insight and free input on that question, uh, uh, Press Authors. So to continue on with the literary art for this evening, uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Bruce Sager. And Bruce was awarded the uh, 2010 Harris Prize for his book, Famous. Uh, this was the second annual uh, Kalinda Harris Poetry Prize. And Dick Allen, a uh, fabulous poet and the poet laureate of the state of Connecticut, he was the uh, judge of that uh, contest that Bruce won. He has received a recent uh, Maryland State Arts Council Individual Artist Award in both fiction and poetry, and a Baltimore City Arts Grant uh, in poetry back in, well, I won't say how long ago that was. 1862. Um, 1862. And he followed that up by uh, soon thereafter with a 1986 <laughs> Artscape Literary Arts Award. Um, you know, and what's cool about Bruce is that, um, you know, I was just talking the other day about this, sort of like you've got, your, you've got your family life, you have your professional life, and then you have your creative life. And here's a gentleman who, you know, even though we all do it, and here, you know, Bruce really is the epitome of a guy who refuses to give up his fabulous literary art, no matter what it gains him, no matter, you know, you know, between 1986 and 2010, um, or with some nice grants in between. Um, it's a perseverance because at the end of the day, we do what we do because we can't not do it. And I think, uh, I think Bruce really does uh, 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 display that. Um, so, reading from famous, or maybe from new work, it looks like, uh, Bruce Sager. Thanks. New old work. You want, you want to say that? Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, I have a call out for, uh, for Greg. Nobody really acknowledges this guy's doing a hell of a job here. I think we all just thank you. Last comment on what we were talking about. It struck me as all the ladies were speaking that um, 
most people start with the, the pen and, 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 the, and they wind up um, with pixels. And I'm starting generally with pixels. I'm writing on a computer and then I'm winding up on a page. That's where I prefer it. So there are a lot of ways to skin that cat, I guess. Um, Elliot, that is Tom Stearns Elliot, uh, talked about measuring your life in coffee spoons. Uh, I discovered a different way to do this. I, I uh, sent off, I, I, I like track two razor blades, but they don't make them anymore. And you can only get them on the secondary market. So, um, hi, Mom. So, so I, I uh, bid on a whole um, load of uh, track two razor blades on eBay. And, and they, they, they advertised and they said it was a lifetime supply. You see, and I foolishly <laughs> won. Then I had the definition of a lifetime supply, <laughs> a definition of a lifetime. So it wasn't Elliot's coffee spoons for me. It's track twos. I, I, so I wrote a round of haiku about this. There are eight haiku. It's called Why I Won't Shave Anymore. It occurs to me that I don't need to read the haiku. You get it. One, a box came last fall chock full of razor blades and marked lifetime supply. Two, largesse from eBay. Unopened Gillette Track 2s. The countdown begins. Three, I am 55. 2,000 blades. Two per week. Go on, do the math. Four, I want to clean up but shudder at the notion of changing a blade. Five, what was I thinking? Bidding on something like this, this bargain from hell. From hell. Six, how can a grown man fear something beneath his sink? Just look at that box. Seven, pick your poison, bud. Elliot chose coffee spoons. Me, these razor blades. And eight, it's spring. Don't ask me why I won't shave anymore. You know the answer. I wrote a poem recently, it has, a, it, right in the middle of a serious poem, it has an address to Castle Command, an apostrophe. I don't know what Castle Command is. I wrote a follow-up, it's called Castle Keep. It's mercifully short. Where is Castle Keep, O Castle Command, ye engine ask, ye engineer? Don't you remember, darling, I said it very clear, but you were something close upon your twelfth or 15th beer. It was the ground beneath our feet when there was nothing there. The moth in the printer. Of all the inhospitable shores upon which to attempt a mooring, few could be so unpromising as the inside ledge of the paper tray of my HP LaserJet 1300. And yet it is exactly there, disappeared now into the inner workings of a technology, that this creature more delicate than any document, more intricate than any words, has chosen to make its last stand. All I need do is press print. Print. And the 20-pound stock will begin its journey, its grind through this marvelous machine to arrive in the exit tray covered in wispy observations and running in smooth lines. The word made flesh, the flesh made word, the fragile flakes of toner 
married more closely than ever I'd hoped to my most breakable muse. Say, now you said I'm a doer, but I'm going to read a poem. It's funny. Of course, you kill a poem if you say it's funny first. Two people changing a light fixture. Here I am, standing in my skivvies at the top of a ladder, with all of this power at my fingertips, luminous, vacant, plush, repulsive. And here you are at the base of the ladder, staring into my skivvies. Ah, what's a poetry reading without a threnody or two, you know, after you left? Oh, it's an internet poem. After you left, I didn't need photographs, that's for sure. Your face was everywhere. Your smell. Country songs made sense to me. The worst part was the internet, oddly, the original vessel of your flight. Search engines taunted me. I'd type in world's greatest beauty, and up would come a select few names, yours leading the pack. I'd type in, how did this happen? And every one of my letters appeared, and yours as well. The ones written to others, replete with typos. I soon learned how to refine my torture. Who is she holding now? Where is she this weekend? There were always plenty of answers never the ones I wanted to hear. And sometimes they came with pictures. Eventually I learned that I could type in slack-bellied slut and dumb as a rock to end up just as reliably with your pick. After that it became almost a game. But one day, my search term yielded an unexpected result. I typed in redhead and up came Maureen O'Hara, followed by Lucille Ball. I kept scrolling through actors and politicians, a few models, but no you. When I got to Archie, I realized that something had changed. You were among the missing. A week or so later, I typed in Black Hole, and all that came back were celestial sightings. Ah, progress, I thought. But still, your ghost ship would float through the dawn mists to moor just beyond my territorial waters. Your name was never more than a keystroke away. And then one evening, not so long ago, time stopped to sip some scotch with me in the smoke and starlight of an unhurried bar, and I learned that my parole had finally come through. Now I can type in most awful moment, and up come pictures anyone could make out, towers, tsunamis, assassinations. Broken Heart gives me the book jacket photo of a novelist I've never read. It's getting harder and harder to find your image anywhere on my computer, not even under, frankly, I don't give a damn. In fact, in fact, if it weren't for these notices your lawyer keeps sending, one day I might forget entirely the spelling of your maiden name. Forget how lightly the morning sun played over the cilia of your arms when you'd crawl in a drowsy puff of sleep about my neck and chest and legs, and the precision of blue along your lids, and the exact scent of your hair. You know, after you write a poem, you discover you can actually write the poem much quicker. 
American justice and divorce. Once I had a house and car. Then I met Judge Roland Burke. Now I live above a bar and take the bus to work. <laughs> and here, my friend, is actually another internet poem. There should be a gaming poem in 2012. Uh, the game of Othello is that one where you flip, uh, you, 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 it's black or white, and you put down something and it flips all the coins in the row. I was playing uh, Othello on the internet. You were sitting beside me talking. This is called the Emperor Tiberius. I was playing Othello on the internet. You were sitting beside me talking. You were telling me about Caesar Augustus between puffs of pipe smoke, the absolute sweep of power. From time to time, you'd point out the right move, and I could tell that you were more experienced, the better player. I was pitted against a character who built himself as Hercules, me, little Joan of Arc, with my bloodless breasts of steel. Oh, I was getting torched again and again. Hercules had me at every corner. I could see that you'd had enough. Your forehead stitched. I'll make him pay for this arrogance, you said, sitting down in my chair, locking on as Tiberius, and your brow became the emperor's brow as you poised on the field of battle. This is more or less a true poem, when the heart is lifted out of the body. It's a particular species of surgery pioneered back in the early 70s by this very practitioner, this modest Filipino doctor who could easily be mistaken for a plumber or the man who runs an employment agency for a typesetter or a telephone operator, or some guy cleaning a food court. He could be anyone. Who he is, though, is the man who has just lifted your mother's heart clear from her body to adjust a small, stubborn valve that you always sensed was there, regulating the ins and outs. Ten times a week, he performs this stage miracle. Five hundred times a year, he scoops the heart from the thorax and stitches and pokes at it, files away the rough edges, and sometimes, since he's only human and given to boredom just like everyone else, and a little impish besides, when he looks over at the living, heartless body, if it's resting peacefully in its nest of tubes and jimmies and pumps, sometimes he takes an extra minute or two just for himself and holds the heart high in the air and waves it like a trophy for 30 years of hard work. But then he feels guilty and decides he owes the patient a little something extra, something beyond a gesture. So perhaps he'll empty the excess baggage. And sure enough, there's always something. Something that weighs more than the operating table, the entire floor. Or some animal with narrow eyes and razor teeth, the creature your father left to live there. Or even some secret you've been carrying in your wallet like a yellow thumbnail since high school. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you. Our final reader this evening is uh, someone who I like to consider the poster child of City Lit Project. This is because she was the very first winner of the Harris Poetry Prize. Uh, long before that, she was a writer, an artist, a diligent community builder, um, she taught in schools, um, she won the prize, and she's now sort of t 
taking this momentum and, and developing our own community, both locally in Howard County and in the region, but also through the, the wonderful work that she does with Little Patuxent Review. So it sort of is the epitome of go forth and make your own literary community. Um, Laura, she, as I, I just want to give her a proper intro, she, she won the first Clarinda Harris Poetry Prize. Um, her book, Mountain, Log, Salt, and Stone, beat out nearly 50 other entries to win the first one back in 2010. Since 2002, Laura has been an artist in education for the Maryland State Arts Council, leading poetry workshops for school children. Her poetry has appeared in many journals, including the Global City Review, Jewish Woman's Literary Annual, Lips, and Patterson Literary Review, and she is now the editor of Little Patuxent Review, based in Howard County, but a literary journal of national repute. Ladies and gentlemen, Laura Chauvin. Thank you. Um, and just to, as evidence that, that Greg isn't, um, well, I, I am the poster child for, for City Lit Press. I have to say, um, winning the, the Harris Poetry Prize opened doors for me that I, I didn't even know existed. Um, I think about six months after the book came out, Maryland Writers Association asked me to edit an anthology of poetry for them um, called Life and Me, Like Grass on Fire, that was extremely successful. We sold out of our first print run um, in one day, <laughs> which, was, which was great. Um, and then Little Protection Review came along, and then um, the Maryland State Arts Council asked me to co-edit an anthology of student poems, which City Lit Press um, did a limited print run of. So um, I've actually I've had three books come out in the three years uh, since, since Greg's. Thank you, Greg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm very grateful to City Lit Press. Um, and and like I said, you know sometimes something happens and you don't know what what's going to come as a result of it. And um, it's just been a wonderful experience. And I love working with with Greg was was great and his team. Um, anyway, so. Uh, what I thought I would do is I'm going to read, um, I have a couple of pairings here. I have one, or actually two poems from the chapbook, and then I chose a newer poem on a similar theme to sort of say, you know, that was, that was my jumping off point, and, and this is um, the direction that I'm working in now, because I feel like my work, in, in addition to the work that I've been doing in the community, my, my work personally has grown a great deal um, since the book came out in 2010. So the first one I'm going to read is The Listening of Plants, and this is in, um, in Mountain Log, Salt and Stone. The Listening of Plants. On the buffet where she kept her celadon dishes, mother placed a vase of pussy willows hurried out of their branches. The buds were cat toes walking up a mottled branch, miniature koalas hanging on their eucalyptus in a scattered line. I snapped one off the twig and rolled the bud on the flats of my thumb and finger, its smoky gray coat how I imagined koala fur might feel. I rubbed the willow bud along the bone of my jaw, wanting to know how a plant can wear animal skin. It was too small, like touching nothing. I splayed my hand along its curves, felt the hairs rise in the divot of my palm. I would have needed a sweater of willow to be satisfied. Instead, I slipped it into my ear. How did I know a pussy willow was the right shape for the foyer of my ear, 
long hall leading to the eardrums and the bones behind. The bud rested there and I listened, wanting to hear what it had to say, which was quiet, which was the muted listening of plants. When I asked mother to extract a pussy willow from my ear, I couldn't explain its presence, how I listened and heard its secret. So um, my new poem, I'm, I'm really interested in the kind of, because I grew up in a very suburban um, setting, and I still live in a suburban setting now. I've spent some time um, in cities. I'm a NYU grad, and New York is like my home city, and Baltimore is my adoptive city. And um, So I'm really interested in when nature and urban or suburban environments intersect. And I don't know if you all saw speaking of internet again, there was a story on the internet, strange news, you know how you get those strange news stories? I love those. Um, this one was about a man who was bit by a rattlesnake at a Walmart in the spring. Did you see that? Um, I didn't put it in the poem, but he was buying mulch for his pot farm. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know, poetic justice if, you, if you're not a believer in legalizing um, Anyway, so the poem is called Rattlesnake Bites Man in Walmart Garden Center. He thought it was a stick lying on the mulch. His fingers grasped what he thought was wood, but too giving. A moment of cool, relaxed flesh, a moment of muscles in reaction. The startled rattler bit him, surprised as the man to find itself at Walmart. With his work boots, he tap-danced on the four buttons of its rattle, its sticky backbone no longer than a schoolchild's plastic ruler. Officials reviewed security camera footage to see how the snake could have got there, but called it an isolated incident of nature. Six vials of anti-venom and a diapering of, of bandages. It's the only treatment. Forget cutting the bite open and sucking out the venom with your hungry lips. One bite, my fellow shopper, and we are back to Eden. Okay, so um, another poem from the chapbook is called Tomorrow is Going to be Normal, and I have to kind of harken back. William Stafford, um, the poet William Stafford, is one of my poetic, I don't know, heroes and muses, and um, he has a poem called A Passing Remark, and I took the idea of writing a poem about a passing remark um, to write this poem about my son. And it's called, Tomorrow is Going to be Normal. Walking home from the school bus, my son says, tomorrow is going to be normal. He speaks with the confidence of relief. When every day is the same, he can breathe. Each morning, I tell myself, today is the day. I wait for the remarkable to land on my shoulder or call me on the phone. Sometimes it is a fortune written on the tag of my tea. Sometimes it is a bird. Other days, I miss the quiet calling to attention. I go to bed tired. My son knows there is comfort in monotony. Do I really want the phone to ring? It could be the lottery or a hospital calling. He thinks my life is enough, the mildness of the room, when I am the only thing moving in it. No, I must begin each day wanting the next few hours to jolt me out of sameness. He shakes his head that we could be so different we both find remarkable. 
Okay, and um, here's my new poem. And actually, this is also sort of inspired by um, a William Stafford poem called Memorial Sun Kit about his um, son who committed suicide. Um, I have a 15-year-old son, and I just, there's a line in that poem that goes, um, try to remember exactly, something like, how far you have come, my boy, um, so brave. I'm not going to remember the line. It just the, the little pieces, my boy, so brave, so far. And that really spoke to me. Um, and I was also having a conversation with a friend of mine who's, um, who has a teenager the same age as my son who's transgender and, and really going through those issues. And I was thinking about um, how we have this sort of dream child, you know, even before sometimes we get pregnant, that, that can be very difficult to let go of. That other child sort of sticks with us and... Um, you know, our real children may not know about that child, but we, we always remember sort of the hopes and dreams that we had of who this child was going to be. And um, this is a, a very new poem, um, so if it has some mistakes, bear with me. And I'm, I just thought it paired nicely with the other one. The Art of Craft. Before I was pregnant, the child who would be came to me, amalgam of words and images, threads of boys I knew, I gathered every scrap, constructed a piecemeal child from newspaper strips, advertising everything I'd ever thought I wanted. Headlines announcing the Nobel Prize, photos of athletes in motion, a Peanuts comic strip all plastered into goopy shape until I had a golem boy to love. When my son arrived late and real as flesh, I knew the papier-mâché kid was all wrong. But his plaster of Paris joints stuck fast. It's taken me years to loose the clever op-ed columns and features I wrote myself. I peel and rip to get inside. My son kicks and jabs his way out. It has been a long pulling apart. Sometimes a wide strip of paper will come off, and the whole thing spins away from me. There was no preparing for this child with the wide shoulders of his father's father whose mind takes a winding path, though it can't be mapped, even had I started out with an atlas full of paper. And then I'm going to read one more new one, and this is kind of an internet poem because, um, well, I'll tell you the story. Uh, last year, not, not this year, but last year, we went to the Baltimore Grand Prix. I have some racing fans in my family. And my new word that I learned at the Grand Prix was chicane. Did you learn that word too when the Grand Prix was here? Okay, so um, it's kind of like to slow the cars down because they're actually driving through the city even though they say it's a track. It's really, you know, the city streets. They make these sort of, they put these barriers that they have to kind of snake through very quickly. So they have to slow down and it's, you know, it stops accidents and adds a little bit more excitement to the race. And I was really interested in this verb um, or noun, which is related, of course, to chicanery, trickery. Um, and so I used the internet to grab a definition. And this poem has four short parts, and each part has its own little sort of epigraph, which is a piece of the de definition. So um, you'll hear me reading pieces of the definition and then pieces of the poem about the Grand Prix. Chicane. Intransitive verb, chicane, employ trickery, deceive or cheat, defeat someone through subterfuge. In Baltimore, 
Caged with metal fence and stage, crowded stands face the wharf rat pub where people eat their meals, carry on conversation. The indie cars blur past. I cannot hear, work out the trick of talk. It is silence or shout, everyone near with plugs in his ears to keep the engines out. Noun, chicane, an artificial narrowing or turn on a road or auto racing course, often S-shaped. A race car must slow to take its turns, the way one slows when a palindrome spins on one letter or two and with a pop emerges as the back end of a car, the hiccup and burp of shifting gears always speeding past, always approaching. Okay, here's the second part of the noun. And, finish near, uh, and near the finish of a race in various senses, obstacles on a roadway. Riding home on Baltimore's light rail, I try to say with a trick of my eyes that my son should not stare at that woman, blue nails long as a jay's claws. He must learn to read deceit in the casual way some people take a seat, watchful as birds, still and bold, ready to scold. And then the last part of the noun is all ultimately from an archaic verb from Middle French, 15th century, to pettifog or quibble. To be fastest here, a driver must quibble with speed, take a tight sequence of corners whose angles oppose, though Baltimore knows its streets have always been tricky. Thanks, Laura. So, uh, so listen, uh, it's a little late. Um, the, the library needs to sort of wind down and, and, and go to sleep so all the books can be fresh and awake tomorrow morning. So I'll tell you what. Um, I want to say one thing first. I want to absolutely say how proud I am of each of these authors, how honored I am to have uh, been their publisher. So join me in, in a round of applause for Jen Mikulski, Laura Chauvin, Bruce Sager, and Jennifer Wallace. It's also very important to City Lit Press that everybody leave tonight with a piece of literature. So all the books that you see are free for you to take. So whoever wants a book, this is from City Lit uh, Press's stock. Get a book, go home with a book, take two, share one with a friend, spread literature throughout the city. It's very important to our mission. Um, so then lastly, since it's a little bit late, let's go ahead and break up. Um, uh, if you want to get a book signed, I'm sure our authors will be glad to do so. And if you have questions, uh, I'm sure my, the authors will be glad to, to, to uh, answer them. So let's, let's keep it informal and casual as we break up for the night. Grab a book, ask a question, enjoy the rest of Literary Arts Week, and thank you to the Enoch Pratt Free Library.